Today on Something You Should Know, your boss has the right to spy on you. I'll tell you just how far they can go. Then self-confidence, how to feel more of it and project it out to the world. So the best way on becoming more confident is by working on your inner dialogue that involves like, you know, I'm not judging others. Everyone has their strengths and weaknesses. And when you can do that to others in your own head, you'll find that it's a lot easier to put yourself out there. Then the health benefits of having a religious belief. It's really amazing. And a look at your intelligence. Yes, it's great to be smart, but there are dangers as well. People who are very intelligent, if they don't have the kind of checks and balances to ensure they're applying that intelligence correctly, can actually be even more wrong than people who are less intelligent and actually lead us to make some really disastrous errors. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you ask any manager, I bet you they can tell you some hiring horror story because hiring is hard. That's why if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And fast is good, but quality also matters. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. So why leave hiring up to your every-so-often, once-in-a-while, try-to-do-the-best-you-can approach to hiring when Indeed gives you a proven system that works and so many potential candidates, you're bound to find the right person. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your job more visibility at Indeed.com slash something. Just go to Indeed.com slash something right now. And support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. From time to time, I like to remind you that if you hear an advertiser on this podcast and they have a special offer or a promo code or a special URL to go to, all of those things are listed in the show notes for the episode. And all of our promo codes and special offers are also on our website, somethingyoushouldknow.net. Right at the top of the page there, there is in the navigation is is a thing that says promo codes. Click on that and you'll get all of the promo codes to take advantage of all the offers that are mentioned on this podcast. We start today with workers' rights. If you work for someone else, if you have an employer, you probably like to think that you have rights, but you probably have far fewer rights than you think you do. For example, did you know that your employer has the right to spy on you? A lot of what you do on company time or on company equipment is fair game, according to Lewis Maltby, who is an attorney and president of the National Work Rights Institute. Here is a list of what they can legally look at. They can look at what you send. They can check out any email sent through the company's network. That includes mail and messages from your personal account, laptop, tablet, or smartphone 
using their Wi-Fi. They can spy on what you post. Online activity on your company's time or network is on their radar. Even if it's on your own time or equipment, employers can legally monitor internet content by or about their employees. They can monitor what you say. Your workplace could even be bugged. In most states, employers have the right to install hidden audio recording devices. And they can monitor where you go. If you have a company car or a company cell phone, your boss can be watching via GPS. For as little as $5 a month, they can subscribe to GPS trackers that can see where you go and what time you get home. And that is something you should know. What exactly is self-confidence? Is it a feeling you have inside, or, or is it something you project that other people perceive? And have you noticed that sometimes self-confidence can be fleeting? You can be very confident in one situation and not so confident in another. So how do we get a handle on self-confidence, how do you, and how do you get more of it? That's what we're about to discuss with Lena Otoya. Lena is the author of several books, including The Mindset of Self-Confidence, Why Self-Confidence Has Nothing to Do with Speaking Up or Standing Straight. Hi, Lena. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Hey, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. So what made you decide to to research this and get a deeper understanding of self-confidence? It started because I felt like I've always been a pretty introverted person, but I never had any self-esteem problems. So I was always pretty confident within myself, and I knew that I had a lot of value and self-worth. But if I were at a party or something like that, I would sort of be like that quiet one in the room. And I would think to myself, you know, if anybody is looking at me right now, they would see a shy person, somebody who doesn't have a lot of confidence. So what is self-confidence? Is it that feeling inside that I'm a confident person? Or is it that thing I project where other people look at me and say, well, now he's a confident person? I mean, it can get a little complicated, but basically what it is in a nutshell is that confidence does have those two pieces. It has those two parts that need to be working together. So one is how you feel inside and how you want other people to see you. So that's kind of the key there, is that it's how other pe- how you want others to see you, and you want that to be very authentic and, and lined up. So I can give a quick example. So let's say that you're in a meeting, you're in a business meeting or something, and you don't have any ideas, you don't have anything to contribute to the meeting. And if you're okay with other people in the meeting knowing that you don't have any ideas, and you're sitting there silently, you're actually being confident because you're, you are playing your authentic self and you're revealing to others how you feel inside. The problem is when there's like a mismatch there. So let's say you do have a lot of ideas and you want to be contributing to the meeting, but you're not speaking up. That's where there's like a mismatch because clearly your outside confidence skills are not lining up with how you feel inside. Do you suppose, from your talking with people on this topic, that people are pretty satisfied with their level of self-confidence and it's just some people need to work on it, or is this a very pervasive problem? It is a pretty pervasive problem because it does involve the two different aspects. So I've got a lot, and getting the two of them lined up is, is 
a challenge for a lot of people because either people feel like they they're they aren't very confident they don't like sorry they don't feel they're very good at public speaking or they don't feel they're very good at small talk but they do have that confidence within themselves so then they're not they're not confident and they don't feel like they can reveal them true their true selves and that does take a lot of work and especially for introverts because I feel like introverts they're they do have a lot of like self-reflection they're very self-aware and so this can be a huge hurdle in trying to be able to just let yourself loose into the world without fear of judgment. How do you define self-confidence? What is it exactly? Self-confidence is when you can reveal your authentic self to others. So it means that you are confident inside, you have self-esteem, and you can reveal that sense of confidence, like self-esteem and self-worthiness to other people. So it, it does involve those two sides. So the inner side is kind of like your inner dialogue, the, the things that you tell yourself and that you believe about yourself. And then the outer part is those social skills, like the public speaking, um, small talk, engaging with others confidently. So it's those two things lining up together. So when you say that, that, that you might have inner, for example, inner confidence, you feel confident, but you're not good at small talk. Mm -hmm. um, well, why aren't you good at small? If, if you're confident, what, what's the problem with small talk? A lot of introverts, I hear this a lot, where they say, like, I like to have deep, meaningful conversations. I don't like to talk about the weather. So that's something people kind of often say that they're not very good at just walking up to people and talking about just random casual things. So it's an important thing to remember that, you know, human connection actually has three steps. So it starts with small talk, it leads into opinions, and then it leads into personal revelation. So humans don't start off by telling their deepest, darkest secrets to somebody that they just met. And if, if they did do that, like if someone walked up to you and started doing that, you'd think that they're like pretty weird and kind of odd. So the first step in human connection is actually engaging in that small talk, that talk about the weather. And the reason why it's actually so important is because you're, you're not really talking about the weather. What you're doing is you're creating a safe environment for the other person and for yourself to eventually start opening up and leading into deeper conversations, which, reaches, which is a deeper connection. Often when people talk about self-confidence, like you're telling your child, you know, act confident, stand up straight, you know, firm handshake, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Is that is that good? Is that a good way to lead people into self-confidence or is that just, you know, ornaments on the tree? It is ornaments on the tree. So it is a good... It is a good goal to have. You want to be able to speak uh, or stand up straight, look people in the eye. You want to be able to get to that level. But starting with that is completely backwards. Like it need, you need to start with why you're connecting with people, how to connect with people, um, why you might struggle doing that. It all starts within, within inside and that inner dialogue that you have. And then the goal is, um, is to have all of those outward things like speaking up straight or speaking up or standing up straight. All of that stuff is actually a goal. It's not really something you should be trying to do, if that makes sense. So you can be self-confident and have a lousy handshake and slouch, and but you're still confident inside. You just don't have the, the social skills necessarily to project it, but it's there. 
Exactly. And if you are okay with other people seeing you as somebody that slouches and has a limp handshake, um, then you, you're fine because you're, you're portraying your authentic true self. Other people are seeing that within you. And so you're good. You're all lined up and ready to go. However, if you let's imagine that you are a lawyer or somebody that's in a very professional um, work setting and you have confidence inside, but you have this limp handshake and you slouch and you're shy when you talk. If you don't like that about yourself and you don't like that you're doing that, that's where we have that mismatch. So that's where we have the outward side not lining up with the inward. And that's where you would have to work on that, those outward skills. Is there something people can do when the situation demands it? If you're not necessarily feeling particularly self-confident, but it's important to project confidence anyway, is there something people can do to, you know, fake it? That is something that you can't really, like, you can't really just do it on the spot if you haven't worked on it. So you can't just be expected to show a huge level of confidence and show everybody that you're the best, loudest person in the room if you haven't worked on it um, deeply from within. So the best way to actually start doing that is to start working on on your inner self dialogue. And and, and one way that's like, I find that everybody can kind of relate to this is people who are um, who struggle with putting themselves out there are often very critiquing of themselves and others in their head. So basically they judge other people. So they're the kinds of people that are thinking in their head, oh, that person, you know, they asked a dumb question in the meeting or that person was stuttering when they talk, they must be super shy. You know, when you're having these these um, thoughts in your head of judgment toward other people, it makes you feel like if you're going to put yourself out there, other people are going to judge you too. So the best way on becoming more confident and, you know, projecting that sense of confidence to others is by working on your inner dialogue and realizing, creating a safe space in your own head that involves like, you know, I'm not judging others. Everyone has their strengths and weaknesses. And when you can do that to others in your own head, you'll find that it's a lot easier to put yourself out there. I'm talking with Lana Otoya. She is author of the book, The Mindset of Self-Confidence. My self-confidence has nothing to do with speaking up or standing straight. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know is all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Lana, there are those times, though, that even the most confident person walks into a situation that is intimidating, and intimidation seems to just sap your self-confidence. So, what do you do then? 
It is all about that inner dialogue because people who are, if they get intimidated easily, a lot of the times it's because they overthink things in, your, in their head and they're going, they're trying to have this logical um, or illogical thoughts that are going around in their head. A lot of the times, the most confident people that we see um, are, that are able to just kind of talk to anybody, they're able to just start up a conversation. A lot of the times those people, they're not very self-aware. <laughs> if you notice, like those a lot of the times people who are very chatty or very don't mind being the center of, of, of attention in the room they don't care if they're making a fool of themselves they don't care how they're coming across to others and that could almost be a weakness in some cases but the truth is they are just not looking inward and not looking at at how they're how they're portraying themselves and that can be that can be the the detriment to somebody who is very self-aware and is constantly self-critiquing is that you're afraid of putting yourself out there if you're one of those people who is con constantly self-critiquing, then how do you stop doing that? One men method I mentioned was not to judge other people. So that's the very first step. Don't judge other people. Try to give other people the benefit of the doubt. But a really great way to start really doing that is to remember that every person has their strengths and weaknesses. So yes, you're always going to catch people in a weak moment if you're looking for that. You know, somebody at a meeting, let's say again, you know, they speak up to the meeting and they're very shy, they're a little bit awkward. You might easily be able to say, oh, that person's kind of shy. They're, they're clearly socially awkward. But maybe that person is, you know, a genius with numbers and they're a genius genius accountant or something like that. So that's going to be the case for every single human being is that you're going to catch people in their weak sides and their weak things that they're not great at. And they also have their strengths, right? So you got to do that for yourself, remembering that you've got weaknesses and strengths and that other people have weaknesses and strengths. And this can really help that inner dialogue become a lot more positive. So you're, you're not afraid of revealing yourself because even if someone catches you in a weakness, you've kind of mentally prepared yourself that, yes, of course I have weaknesses, but I have strengths too. And I'm, I'm a valuable person despite those weaknesses. And that helps with self-esteem. Do you think that even really confident people, in really confident people, that self-confidence is a variable? In other words, it seems that all of us are confident in some situations, and then there are other situations when we're not. And is that common? Is that, or are really self-confident people self-confident everywhere? Mm -hmm. No, that's very com common. It's very common to be confident in certain situations versus others. Let's say you're at some kind of work retreat and everybody's at the lake and they're all having fun and um, they're all talking about this big rock, um, that daring each other to kind of jump off of this rock. And you have been an expert diver. You've been diving since you were five years old. You've been in swimming lessons. You're a total pro. So easily you can say to everybody, yeah, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to jump off that rock. So you can walk up there. You never hesitate. You don't look back. You double backflip off the rock and you land in the water and, and it was perfect. You, you handled that situation with complete confidence. Um, but then let's use a different person in the group. Let's call him Bob. And if he's uh, your coworker, he says, ah, that's easy. I'll go, I'll go do that too. And so he goes up to the rock. He never hesitates. He never looks back. He jumps right off the rock and totally belly flops in the water. Um, and everybody starts laughing at him. And as he emerges from the water, he says, see, I told you it was easy. 
So this is a really great example because it is putting two people in a situation where one person is an expert in it, they should be completely confident, and the other person is not. So technically, they should not be confident. But in this story, you can see that Bob handles this situation with true confidence. He really does. Um, even though he didn't perform the jump as well as you did, he still had that ability to be confident and to project confidence despite the situation. So it is common for people to not have confidence depending on certain situations, but that is a goal in our lives is to be confident no matter the situation. Why do you think confidence is so attractive in other people? Humans are social creatures, and we do value connection with other people. And I feel that especially um, in, in terms of like mating and finding a partner in a romantic relationship, stuff like that too, it's very easy to get to know people who are going to be putting themselves out there. It makes it easy for, for example, if for you, if somebody just walks up to you and starts saying, hey, Mike, how are things going? How, I heard you're doing this. How, are, how is this going? It actually makes it very easy for you to connect with that person because they came up to you and they kind of took the plunge. So I think it becomes very attractive because it makes it really easy for you to connect with, for others to connect with confident people. It's interesting that we see that in other people. It looks so attractive, but oftentimes it's very hard to do, even though you know that if you did it, if you, if you exuded that confidence, people would be attracted to you. Because as much as we can try to pretend to act confident, um, it really is something that comes from within us. And so if you're going to try to fake confidence, I feel like that is something that people can spot very, very easily. Um, and it's just not going to be a good time for anybody. And it's going to be embarrassing for you. Um, humans are pretty good at spotting when other people are being authentic or inauthentic. And that's why I kind of related confidence very much to the fact that it has to be an authentic experience. You have to be portraying outwardly what you feel inwardly. But can you pump up that confidence temporarily. So maybe you're not faking it, but it isn't your normal way of being, but you really kind of psyched yourself up. Well, yes, of course. Yes, you definitely can. And there is an aspect of confidence that is that involves fake it till you make it. Um, there, If you are putting yourself outside of your comfort zone and you're, you're, you're trying to speak up when normally you wouldn't, that's actually you working on your confidence skills. So the more you try doing that, the better you're going to get at it. And then at one point, you're just going to feel actually comfortable with doing that and acting in that way. And that's when you've actually like, reach that true confidence state. Um, so yeah, definitely working on those skills, practicing them um, is a way to get to true confidence. Yeah, for sure. What are the things that, that you, you sense are the experiences that are either really good at bolstering your self-confidence or con on the contrary, really good at knocking it down? 
One thing that humans really, really hate because we're social creatures is is rejection. That is something that we don't enjoy at all. Um, so that happens when we put ourselves out there, we reveal a bit of ourselves to somebody else, and we get rejected or made fun of. Um, and that kind of makes us want to put up this wall that makes us not want to reveal ourselves anymore because we're afraid of that rejection. Um, and that is kind of the, the way that you're going to start having self esteem problems and the way that you're going to lose your confidence is if if you have felt that feeling of rejection before and have and have decided that you don't ever want to feel it again so it's important to remember that rejection is just part of life and that it's uh, it's going to happen to all of us because I always like to say this you know we have seven billion people in the world and seven billion personalities there's never a personality that's going to be exactly the same from one human being to the other so so rejection is inevitable. It's going to happen no matter what you do. And so, yeah, that can destroy your confidence is feeling that you're getting rejected. Um, and then you kind of mentioned uh, what's something that can boost your confidence. Well, it's kind of the opposite of that, which is acceptance. So feeling that you can kind of reveal your true self, reveal an aspect of your personality and have other people go, yeah, that's awesome or that's super cool and that's really great. So whenever you feel accepted by others, that's when your confidence boosts. But there are those people, though, who when they get complimented, when they're told, great job, that's really great, they, they kind of dismiss it as, oh, they're just being polite or whatever, mm -hmm. that, that they're so expecting to be rejected that, that they, don't, they don't even believe it. That is a self-esteem problem. So when you, if you have that issue and you're facing that a little bit, um, one really great way to kind of combat that is to remember that you have two different types of thoughts. You have thoughts that are automatic thoughts. These are the thoughts that just pop into our heads and we have no control over them. And then you have the thoughts that you do control, so controllable thoughts. And controllable thoughts are easy to kind of pinpoint because um, if I give you an example, like if I say, Imagine a pink elephant balancing on a blue ball. You can picture that in your head. You can put that elephant in your head. So this is a controllable thought. This is something you can control. Now, if you want to start slowly changing the generic tone of your automatic thoughts, the way to do that is by controlling your th the thoughts that you can control and making those positive. So it, the more you can kind of switch those negative thoughts into positive thoughts, um, the, the better you can kind of control those automatic feelings of doubt or insecurity that kind of randomly pop into your head. That's like the first step in getting those thoughts to be a little more positive on a regular basis. Well, it's interesting that we all, from the time we're really young, we're told, you know, you have to have self-confidence. You've got to build your self-confidence. Yeah, well, how? And you, you've explained it really well. My guest has been Lana Otoya, and the book is called The Mindset of Self-Confidence, Why Self-Confidence Has Nothing to Do with Speaking Up or Standing Straight. There's a link to her book in the show notes. Thanks, Lana. Thanks for being on the podcast. Great. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mike. If I asked you, are you intelligent? You'd probably say yes, because we all like to think we're intelligent to some extent. But what does it mean to be intelligent? What makes someone more intelligent than someone else? What, in fact, is intelligence? And can you get more of it? Can you be too intelligent for your own good? 
Well, that's what David Robson decided to look at. David is a journalist for the BBC, The Atlantic, and New Scientist, and he's the author of a book called The Intelligence Trap, Why Smart People Make Dumb Mistakes. Hi, David. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. When you say the word intelligence, everybody has a sense of what that means. I know what you're talking about when you talk about someone's intelligence. But what do you mean by it? How do you define intelligence? That's a great question, and it is one that has really puzzled you know, psychologists and philosophers and thinkers. But the definition I'm going with here is really the one that psychologists have now, um, the kind of consensus that psychologists have come to, which is that intelligence is this kind of general underlying brain power that helps us to process complex information. So it's the kind of things that are measured quite well with intelligence tests, the IQ tests that are now a century old. So you know those verbal problems, um, nonverbal spatial reasoning, pattern recognition. All of those tap into this kind of underlying brain power. And I think of it as a little bit like a car's engine. You know, it's really what gives you the kind of propulsion and force in your thinking. Is our intelligence set or can we become more intelligent or less intelligent? So there's undoubtedly a kind of genetic component to people's IQ schools when you compare people within the same population and roughly similar backgrounds. You know, it's about... Uh, 70 to 80% genetic. Um, But that doesn't mean that it's fixed. And we know that it's not completely fixed and that you can still make huge strides due to something called the Flynn effect. So this is this mysterious rise in IQs that we've seen between generations for the last 80 years or so. And it actually amounts to around 30 IQ points overall. And that shows just how much our intelligence is affected by the kind of environment around us. The psychologists think that numerous factors could could have caused the rise, and it could be partly down to improved healthcare and nutrition that help us to build better brains that are better equipped to to process complex information. But it could also just be um, improvements in education that help us to think a little bit more abstractly, to follow rules, to see patterns. Um, And it could also even be things like technological changes. So, you know, today we're just so used to using computers and smartphones that all require a certain kind of um, abstract thinking that's important for IQ tests. So that suggests that, you know, our thinking skills can be trained. Now, I would say that we should not just focus on intelligence as measured by those IQ tests, but also how we apply that intelligence. And the really promising and important thing about the research I discuss in my book is that we know that that in particular can be very easily learned. So no matter what your IQ, you can learn how to apply your intelligence um, more effectively, more wisely, more rationally. So what is the trap? What's What's the problem that you discuss? So if we go back to that analogy of um, the brain being like a car's engine, then I would say that a faster engine can obviously propel a car to its destination more quickly. But any car needs all these checks and balances to ensure that you apply that horsepower in the best possible way. Otherwise, if you don't have a GPS or good steering or brakes, it could just drive you off a cliff. And I would say that we see exactly the same with people's intelligence. So people who are very intelligent if they don't have the kind of checks and balances to ensure they're applying that intelligence correctly, 
can actually be even more wrong than people who are less intelligent. Now, there are various reasons for that. But to give just one example, there's this phenomenon known as motivated reasoning. And that's where you have a very strong emotional connection to your beliefs. It might be a political ideology or it could be a religious belief. And you're so convinced by that, and it's so important to your identity, that you just apply your intelligence to rationalize those beliefs, even if it's wrong. So one example of that would be Arthur Conan Doyle, the author who um, created Sherlock Holmes. And he had all of these beliefs in spiritualism and fairies, you know, really irrational beliefs. And he actually just applied his intelligence to protect those beliefs even when he was presented with evidence, with really strong evidence that he was wrong. What is the curse of knowledge that you talk about? So that's another form of the intelligence trap. And that is where our kind of perceptions of our own expertise and the kind of um, brain changes that come with expertise can backfire and actually lead us to make some really, uh, really disastrous errors. So there are various Uh, reasons for this. One is this kind of process of entrenchment and the fact that the more knowledge, the more expertise you have in a field, the more your decision making becomes automatic and intuitive rather than careful and deliberate. And that automatic process of thinking or kind of not thinking but just going with your gut is often very good but it's also open to all kinds of cognitive biases that can lead you to error. So this is one reason that doctors Um, often make misdiagnoses is because of that kind of entrenchment. They're kind of going with their gut feelings and they sometimes miss really important evidence that could lead them to the right diagnosis. It would almost seem like trying to avoid these various traps is almost impossible, that you're going to fall into one of them. to, to, To try to stay neutral against all of that seems difficult. I would say it is a challenge, but not impossible. Um, And, you know, no one can make the absolutely uh, most correct decision 100% of the time. But the research is very optimistic, in my opinion, in showing that we we can all improve our decision-making. We can all uh, counteract these biases and these tendencies by being more reflective, by having more self-awareness, and by applying certain very easy-to-apply strategies. It also seems as if and maybe you talk about this as well, that, that sometimes our intelligence seems to fly out the window when we're in a group, that, that groupthink will often trump individual thinking. Exactly. I mean, one of the uh, researchers in this, kind of, in this area, Reed Montague, um, I think he's at Virginia Tech University, he kind of said that, um, you know, in group meetings, and especially in business, we often feel like we're uh, becoming brain dead. But his research has actually shown that, in a way, you do become brain dead. So um, the most damaging group dynamic, really, is when people feel very competitive uh, against each other. And Reed Montague's research has shown that that can actually cause a temporary decrease in the IQs of some members of the group because they're so worried about their status. It's actually such a distraction that their overall abstract reasoning, that information processing drops as a result. It's like the brain can't um, devote all of its resources to the problem at hand. So that's definitely one reason. There's also some great research by a researcher called Anita Williams-Woolley, who's also 
shown that the kind of group dynamic as a whole can influence the group's overall um, performance on these kind of cognitive tasks. And again, we see a very similar pattern, that when you have a lot of conflict in status, when some people are trying to uh, reach the top of the hierarchy and are dominating the discussion, then that as a whole can really damage the uh, group performance and stop everyone from contributing their knowledge and their reasoning. Well, and it seems just like in the, in the case of something s- simple, like uh, there's a fire and everybody's running in that direction, that, that even very smart people will run in that direction without stopping to think, well, why are we running in that direction? Like you mentioned the term group thing, and, you know, there is this problem that you can kind of reinforce each other's uh, confirmation biases. So you gave a very kind of... Um, I would say, elemental kind of problem there, a survival problem, uh, where you might reinforce each other's biases. But we also see this in business and in organizations and in politics between different leaders and government uh, government cabinets where they will start to reinforce each other's biases and ignore important pieces of evidence because, you know, they, they kind of believe that the consensus of the group is more important than uh, analyzing the evidence for what it is. You gave the example a while ago about doctors, which I think is a, a great example, but it's also true in other professions, but it's particularly true with doctors where they see the same symptoms over and over and over again, and so they're probably quicker to rush to say, well, if you have these symptoms, it must be this, without critically looking at each case and deciding what it is. And to give just one example, there's some fascinating work looking at doctors' decision-making that had found that um, simply asking them to pause and to listen, first of all, to their professional intuition, but to then argue against that, to look for the confounding evidence and to consciously try to question that judgment can vastly improve their diagnostic accuracy, reducing errors by as much as 40%. So a really significant increase that could save lives just by applying some Uh, more thoughtful and considered thinking strategies. And these are the kinds of strategies that anyone could use, whatever their profession. One of the things I I guess I don't always understand about intelligence is it it, it isn't one thing. I mean, can't someone be very intelligent in math, but but pretty unintelligent in a lot of other things? And so are they intelligent? I I don't know. So this is the whole uh, problem of defining intelligence. What we do see is that there is good support for the idea of a general intelligence to a certain point. So, you know, someone who's good at maths might not necessarily be brilliant at, um, say, verbal reasoning or writing or that kind of thinking, but the two are correlated fairly strongly. So it is much more likely that if you're good at one of those skills, you're good at another. And that's true for these kind of abstract academic skills. Absolutely, there's no question of that. It's a very well-replicated result. But I think it does become murkier when you look at other forms of thinking. Um, So rationality, as we've just discussed, is one example. But you could also have, for instance, um, tests of creativity and um, also tests of practical intelligence, uh, which is really how well people are able to pick up on those kind of implicit rules and the kind of pragmatic thinking that's necessary to carry out your plans and to to reach your goals. Now, what we see with tests of those particular kinds of thinking is that they, they don't correlate so very strongly with the 
analytical abstract intelligence. So to a degree, it is true that we do have different forms of intelligence. And just because you have a high IQ or you're brilliant at maths doesn't, absolutely doesn't mean that you're going to be a more creative thinker or even that you're going to be better in the workplace to carry out um, really important tasks and to actually get things done. There is that that image of the 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 what is it the absent-minded professor of somebody who's like brilliant at history or economics or whatever, but everyday life is very confusing to them, and 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 it makes you wonder. Well, why is why is that, or is that just a stereotype that with not a lot of validity? There is some truth in that stereotype. So you know there are plenty of intelligent people who lack practical intelligence and. There's also plenty of um, intelligent people who are irrational, and that can affect their personal lives in uh, really disastrous ways. One example of this uh, amazing physicist, Paul Frampton, who appeared to be in running for the Nobel Prize for Physics. You know, a lot of his research had inspired the work at um, the Large Hadron Collider. So there's no doubting he had amazing general intelligence and was a really profound thinker. But he happened to fall for this scam, um, a honey trap scheme, where he was online dating. And through this um, apparent interest of this glamorous young woman uh, called Denise Milani, uh, who was in fact a glamour model, um, he uh, was persuaded to carry two kilograms of cocaine across the Argentinian border and was arrested as a result. And so you see there, he really wasn't thinking in a rational way about his actions. All of his friends had told him that he should um, avoid this apparent relationship, that it really was, was obvious that it was some kind of scam. But he just ignored all of that, all of that evidence, all of his friends' advice, and went ahead with it anyway. Well, that's a great example, and it relates to the subtitle of your book. If, if you, you could be the smartest guy in the world, but if you don't apply what you know, if you don't apply your intelligence to a situation, it doesn't do you much good, does it? I mean, if, you, if you're going to smuggle cocaine across the border, well, yeah. in, in retrospect, and objectively speaking, that's not the brightest thing to do. That's exactly it. It's, I certainly wouldn't deny the value of intelligence. And, you know, we still need to cultivate those skills and to protect them and to give people a good factual education and to help with things like numeracy and, you know, all of these things. But we also do need to teach children to be able to apply that brain power in better, wiser ways. We need to teach them things like uh, rational thinking and critical thinking to really help them to avoid those kinds of errors. Is there any, when the dust settles from all of this, any general advice, knowing what you know, is there some takeaway here? Mm, yeah, there's lots of practical strategies that anyone can apply. So I mentioned one, which was this um, form of decision-making that had been tested by doctors. And it's really just the strategy of like looking for your intuitions, but then questioning them and looking at the kind of base assumptions behind those intuitions and then trying to find contradictory evidence. And there's so much research showing that that, that strategy called considered the opposite for obvious reasons can really help you to mitigate your biases and produce better decisions. Another very simple technique is called self-distancing. And it sounds a little odd, but the idea here is to try to just create a kind of little bit of psychological distance from the problem at hand by talking about the problem in the third person. So, for instance, if I was considering changing jobs, I might start by saying, 
David is considering this new opportunity because, and I would go on in that way, talking to, to myself in the third person. You know, even though that sounds quite artificial, maybe a bit silly, so much research now has shown that actually that can just help you to rein in some of the emotions that might be pulling your uh, decision-making astray. Um, and the good thing about that is that with regular practice, in fact, it can improve your decision-making in the long term too. So it can have really profound consequences um, even when you're not consciously using the technique itself. Yeah, well, I think we've all had that experience of looking at someone else's problem and being able to see it and the solution much more clearly than the person can because as the third party, you can divorce yourself from all the emotions and whatever else is making that such a difficult decision. Mm, yeah, that's exactly the philosophy behind this. It's the idea that, you know, with these tests of wise reasoning, we do actually score much better when we're looking at someone else's problem compared to our own. And self-distancing just helps you to kind of create that artificially so that you, you just um, can take a step back to reappraise the evidence for what it is rather than for what you want it to be. So you avoid applying your intelligence in the wrong way and you just help to apply it in a more rational, even-handed, wiser kind of way. Well, it's so interesting what you said about how intelligence can obviously make you more intelligent, but misapplied intelligence can actually really get in your way. David Robson's been my guest. The name of his book is The Intelligence Trap, Why Smart People Make Dumb Mistakes, and you'll find a link to his book in the show notes. Thank you, David. Thanks for being on Something You Should Know. Uh, absolutely. It's been a real pleasure, and thanks for such great questions. I really felt like you touched on the most important parts. Over 1,400 studies have confirmed that people who have strong religious faith have lower rates of heart disease, better recovery from heart disease, lower rates of cancer, better recovery from cancer, lower drug abuse rates, and so on. Interestingly, no one's really sure why this is. One theory is that religions make people part of a group and being in a social group is good for your health. But people with strong religious faiths have better health than people who are involved in non-religious social groups. Oh, and it doesn't matter which religion you believe in. So, although science can't tell you what to believe, you should believe it intently. And that is something you should know. If you like this podcast, please share it with someone you know so they can like it too. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.